Hello, and welcome to episode 87 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman, and I'm from tennisabstract.com. With me this week, I have a great guest I'm really excited to talk to. It is Sasha Abramsky, who has written a book about the tennis superstar Lottie Dodd. The book is called Little Wonder, the Fabulous Story of Lottie Dodd, the World's First Female Superstar. And we will get to Lottie herself in a moment. But the first thing I want to ask you, Sasha, is this is this is an un, uh, unusual ex- unusually lucky we are to have a a book about 19th century tennis history. Uh, Normally, tennis history is talking about the 70s or 80s. We're not really a very backwards-looking group of people, tennis fans. So I'm curious, do you think there's enough tennis history being written or enough work being done on tennis history beyond your book about Lottie Dodd? (laughs) You know, it's funny. I'm a history buff, and, you know, my, my love of history transcends topic. I just like going back into the past and really rooting around in archives and seeing how people lived in different time periods and so on. And when it comes to sports, certainly with tennis, there are these fabulous characters who populate the story of tennis, certainly going back into the late 19th century, but even going back to the very earliest days of tennis in the 1870s. And there really isn't that much. A lot, a lot of the early tennis stars have become footnotes to history. You can find them in these sort of old archives. You can go into Wimbledon and the um, library in the basement at Wimbledon, or you can go into the Newport International Tennis Hall of Fame, and you can find these stories. But you have to really dig deep. And in actual fact, a lot of the characters, um, some of whom turn up in my book as you know bit part players to Lottie Dodd's story, a lot of these characters are absolutely fabulous adventurers you know they're eccentrics they're people who traveled all over the world they're people who broke through glass barriers and glass ceilings they're people who dance to their own tune by any and every sort of definition and really there isn't enough written about them and I I, I get overjoyed when I go into archives and I sort of find a hidden story like Lottie Dodds and the ability to tell a story that very few people alive today know about as a writer and as a journalist and as someone who dabbles in history it just exhilarates me i think it's a wonderful privilege to have yeah i I love that attitude that there are so many stories buried in the archives i mean I, i i'm just digging around in some 1960s women's tennis history these days and i mean obviously we're talking about generations and generations after lottie dodd and what you've done but even then there's all these women who Played, played some tournaments, traveled for a few years in their early 20s, and then went on to have really interesting other lives, maybe related to tennis, maybe not at all. And I, I, I'm very interested by what you said about the fact that they were players back then in Lottie Dodd's time were adventurers. They were often unusual, kind of unique. And some of that I think of sort of the, the Victorian era eccentrics, um, the, the, the Parsons, the second sons who... Uh, who kind of were left to tr- to tread their own path. And it, it, it sounds like that was common. The sort of people who picked up tennis early in the sports history, is it fair to say that they were, that it wasn't a common path? I mean, just by virtue of being a tennis player, it's a safe bet that they were a little weird somehow or other? I, I think that's true. I mean, the first thing to understand is sports players in general, didn't matter which sport, but sports was an amateur pursuit in the late 19th century. So, almost definitionally, if you were going to spend a lot of your time playing a game like tennis, probably you came from a position of relative privilege and relative financial security. And that was certainly true of Lottie Dodd and her circle. Lottie Dodd came from a family of very wealthy cotton merchants. Her dad had imported cotton from the pre-war South um, in the United States in the 1850s, and then had diversified during the American Civil War. And he was a fabulously wealthy man. Um, And he died when Lottie Dodd was very young. She was seven or eight years old when her father died. But he left this estate, and it was an estate where there were four kids. There was Lottie, her older sister Anne, and then two older brothers. And they were all obsessed with sports. Tennis, they had three tennis courts on the grounds. Um, But they also learned cricket, they learned football, they learned hockey, they learned croquet. Uh, Two of them became very top-rate chess players, which was sort of seen as an intellectual sport. Um, And in many ways, they were the sort of sporting equivalent of the Mitford family. They they were a family defined by these vast achievements on the sports field. 
Um, and in Lottie Dodd's case, she surrounded herself throughout her sporting career, which went from the age of about 11 onwards till she was in her late 30s. She surrounded herself with this eccentric coterie of people who would travel the world and do things uh, that women especially were just not supposed to do. So her best friend for a while was a woman called Elizabeth Main. And she lived in a place called Samaritz in Switzerland. And Maine and Lottie Dodd climb some of the toughest peaks in Europe in the middle of winter, just for the hell of it, just to say they could do it. Um, and they were hanging off mountains in minus 30 degree weather. They were climbing glaciers. Uh, they were tobogganing down these impossibly steep toboggan runs in the, in the Swiss Alps. And they were doing so at a time when the prevailing wisdom was that women were ornamentation to male athletes, that the, the function of women in athletics was to cheer the menfolk on. And that, that was the orthodoxy that was basically pushed out to the public by the head of the International Olympic Committee in the 1890s, who was a Frenchman called Pierre Coubertin. And Coubertin believed that women had no role as being athletes in their own right, and that their only role was as a sort of cheerleading section for the men. And Lottie Dodd and Elizabeth Main and these others were having none of it. And so they'd get up, they'd wear the full Victorian regalia, they'd put on their corsets, their ankle length dresses, they'd have clothing going all the way down to their wrists and all the way up to the bottom of their chin. And somehow, with all of that paraphernalia on, they would then go out and do these wondrous athletic achievements. And in Lottie Dodd's case, time and again, she was told, you can't do this because you're a woman. And she'd say, watch me, and she would do it. And the most extraordinary example of that was when she was 16 years old in summer of 1888. It was also the summer when the Jack the Ripper was terrorizing the East End of London. And if you look in the old newspaper archives from that summer, you see on the front page, Jack the Ripper and his terrifying events. And you see on the sports pages, Lottie Dodd, because what she was doing that summer was challenging all the top male tennis players of her era. Um, including William Renshaw, who was the reigning champion at Wimbledon and would win Wimbledon seven times in the 1880s. He was at the top of his game. And she challenged these men to a series of sporting duels. This is 85 years before Billie Jean King against Bobby Riggs. And she went onto the courts in full, as I said, full paraphernalia, full Victorian costume. And she beat William Renshaw. And she beat two of the other top three men that she played that summer. And to me, this was just remarkable. I mean, you're talking about hidden history. Imagine 85 years before Billie Jean King against Bobby Riggs, you had a 16-year-old girl in the north of England who was doing everything that Billie Jean King would do in the 1970s. It's just an absolutely fabulous story. And as soon as I read that story, I think that was the moment I realized I've got to write a book about this woman. Yeah, that that was one of the biggest surprises for me reading the book because I mean you can you can always go to the Wikipedia page get a basic idea that you know, this is a woman who won a lot of Wimbledon she did it at an early age she set a record she did these other things but I mean that 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 is I feel like yeah that's the that's the headline story that people are going to just really sit up and pay attention to and you mentioned I mean, almost in in passing in what you said not in the book but. Um, that she had to wear some pretty cumbersome gear to get on court just because of the mores of the day. And I mean, that would obviously put her at a disadvantage against someone like William Renshaw. Uh, talk about that. What Tennis has always been defined by, by its clothing and especially women's tennis. And it, it was a very, very different world back then. Yeah, it was. And, you know, to be fair, it was a different world, both for men and for women. So if you look at these, you know, wonderful sepia photographs of, male tennis players 130 or 140 years ago, you see that they're wearing trousers, usually white flannel trousers, they're wearing button up shirts, um, sometimes they're wearing cravats. And what passes for sports shoes are nothing that resemble, you know, the lightweight sports shoes of today. But for women, the clothing constrictions were even more severe, because they came with all of the modicums of modesty of the late Victorian period. So they were heavy, they were constricting because they were expected to wear corsets. Uh, they, they weren't flowing, there was no way the body would have free movement. And the sports shoes were, I mean, certainly the early photos of Lottie Dodd from the 
mid 1880s and very early 1890s, she's wearing what looked like washerwomen's shoes, these very cumbersome, heavy leather shoes that must have made it extraordinarily difficult to pick up pace and to run fast on the court. But the other thing, and again, this was for both men and women, obviously, the other thing was the actual quality of the tennis rackets. So I don't know if you play tennis, I imagine you do because of this podcast, but you know, when I go out on a court today, I'm using an ultra lightweight racket that uses materials like graphite and titanium. And the racket weighs less than half a pound or somewhere in the region of half a pound. It has very advanced um, nylon strings and so on. And it allows me a tremendous degree of flexibility for how I hit the ball. Well, Lottie Dodd was playing with a very, very heavy wooden racket that weighed over a pound. It was like slugging with a baseball bat. It had no give and she was playing with catgut strings, which you could sort of hit the ball flat and hard, but you couldn't do all the spins that players do today. And you, can, you know, I, I remember when I was a kid, the first rackets I had, I, I, I grew up in the 70s and early 80s. And the first rackets I played with were a junior version of the Donne racket that Borg used to win Wimbledon five times. And then I sort of switched loyalties a bit and played with a junior version of McEnroe's racket. And they were both wooden. And they were, you know, I look back on those things. And I think, oh, they're, they're quite cumbersome. But those rackets, compared to what Lottie Dodd was playing with 100 years earlier, were masteries of technology because the racket Dodd was playing with, um, you can find them in, in the old museums. And I actually picked up one in the Newport, Rhode Island Tennis Hall of Fame. They let me handle a few of their rackets from the 1880s. And they're both really, really heavy, but they're also not very well designed in terms of, you know, the mechanics of the, of the actual racket. So when you hit a ball with a racket from the 1880s, you're really slugging the thing. You've got to hit it really, really hard to get bang for the buck. And Lottie Dodd did that. If you, if you read the news reports and the sporting commentaries from the 1880s, all of the commentators were agreed that she was the only woman in the game who could run an opponent from side to side and hit these incredibly hard balls into the corner of the court. And then she would do what Martina Navratilova did more than 100 years later or 100 years later. She would run to the net. She would rush the net and she would put away the ball with a volley. So she had this extraordinarily modern looking game. She played very, very aggressively. Um, the sports commentators at the time, they nicknamed her the Little Wonder, which is where the title of the book comes from. But the other thing they always said, and this sort of speaks to the sexism of the time period, the sort of unreflexive, casual sexism, they would always say she played like a man. And it was meant to be a compliment. What they meant was she played aggressively, she played confidently, she played to win. There was nothing garden party-like in her tennis. But the way they phrased it always came back to this sexist trope. She played like a man. She was too good to be a woman. It's, it's amazing how long that stuck around. I was just watching the 1959 Wimbledon final and the is commentator... Is that with Maria Bueno? Yes, it is. Wow, you're good. <laughs> um, <laughs> Maria Bueno against Darlene Hard and the, the commentator, Dan Maskell, the guy who, who commentated the BBC finals for years, oh, he wait, said... He was I mean, still you can tell when him, I was a kid. Yeah, he, I mean, uh, he's a legend and you, can, and you can tell he doesn't mean any disrespect by it at all, but he's, he's talking about how great these two women are playing and he, he uses the exact same phrase. They, they, they serve in volley like a man. Um, and fortunately, I don't think commentators are getting away with that anymore. No, but I think uh, it really, I, I think it went far sort of more recently than the 50s. I, I think if you look at how commentators talked about Martina Navratilova's game in the 70s and 80s, yeah, you hear the same thing because she, she, she played this very aggressive game. Um, and you, I remember when I was a kid, people would comment on her physique because she was very muscular and so on. And there was this sort of undertone that she wasn't quite feminine enough. Um, I, I, you know, it's extraordinary to me. And you, you think how much things have changed in the last generation. You look at a player like Serena Williams today or some of the younger players who have come up in the last few years. Um, and, you know, they hit the ball incredibly hard. They wallop serves in at 125 miles an hour. And, you know, that's just taken for granted now. But the, But the only reason that that's taken for granted now is because you have these generations of pioneers from Lottie Dodd through to Billie Jean King through to Martina Navratilova who changed the expectations and the parameters of women's sports and made what we see today possible. Yeah, it's really only been a couple generations since 
since there were sort of the remnants of what you're talking about, that the the women who would set out to do something like this were pretty weird. And I mean that in a positive way. Um, but it was not a normal thing to do, even in maybe by the maybe by the 80s, it was starting to be normal. But much before that, it was unusual. So it took 100 years from Lottie Dodd. Um, it it did. You know, I'll, I'll give an anecdote from my book, because you know, one one of the things that makes Lottie Dodd so fascinating is she goes from one sport to the next to the next, and she's sort of a dilettante. She gets a little bit bored. She finds it too easy, and rather than just sticking around and winning more and more trophies, she retires from one sport and moves on to the next. So she won her first Wimbledon when she was fifteen, and she retired from tennis at twenty-one. And by then, she'd already won five Wimbledons. But one of the sports she took up, she moves to Switzerland in the eighteen nineties to Samaritz to be near her friend Elizabeth Main and various others, and. She does a lot of mountaineering, but the other sports that she does while she's in Samaritz are ice skating, and she finds the women's ice skating test there far too easy. So she trains for the male ice skating test and ends up as one of the top male ice skaters in Europe at the time. <laughs> and she's, she's obviously not a man, but she qualifies as one of the top male ice skaters. But the other thing is there was a fiendishly difficult toboggan run in Samaritz called the Cresta Run, and it still exists today, and it's still one of the most difficult toboggan runs on earth. And it had been established, I think, in the late 1880s. And every daredevil in Europe and all the wealthy elites from the Americas, from the United States, Canada, Brazil, and so on, they would descend on Samaritz in winter to try their hand at this extraordinarily difficult course. And a lot of them got very seriously injured because if they handled some of these curves wrong, they would fall, they would, they, they, they'd be thrown at high speed off of the course and a lot of broken bones and so on occurred. But it was thought to be impossible for women to do. And there were a couple of reasons for that. The first was this whole thing about the clothing they had to wear. It was thought that the petticoats would get tangled up in the um, sleds. But the second thing was physiological, that there was a medical literature in the 1890s that started saying that women who did ex extreme sports would damage their reproductive systems, that if they were lying on a toboggan and hurtling down a toboggan run, for example, they would probably injure their uterus and they, they'd be less able to have children or they'd hurt their breasts and end up with breast cancer. That was another thing in the medical literature. And so Lottie Dodd was told she couldn't do the toboggan run. And of course, telling Lottie Dodd that she couldn't do the toboggan run was the sure way of getting her to say, of course I can. And so she convinced her friend Harold Topham, who was a toboggan champion to train her and very reluctantly he did and in either 1896 or 1897 Lottie Dodd became the first woman to go from the top of the Cresta run all the way to the bottom and she did it successfully it was a huge sensation the way the toboggan club responded was not to say oh we were wrong of course women can do this run it was to clamp down on women and within a few years, they passed a resolution saying no woman would be allowed to on the Cresta run again. And that rule stayed in place until last year, until 2019. No woman was allowed to run the toboggan run in San Moritz. And, you know, to me, that's extraordinary. You have this figure in the high Victorian period, Lottie Dodd, basically saying, of course we can do it. We can do it every bit as well as men. And the male athletic response at the time was, well, we're going to lock the door on you in that case. <laughs> and they did. It, it, it kind of forces the issue, right? It's like it, 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 the, the men are at the, of the time are saying that you can't do it for these valid scientific whatever reasons. And as soon as someone proves them wrong, it's like, well, we'll find a different reason. Maybe you'll make us be a little more honest now. Just like some of the, some of the golf clubs that are, have only very grudgingly... Um, widened their membership in the last few decades. Yeah, you know, it, it's a classic example of changing the rules, changing the goalposts halfway through a game. It's, uh, you know, I, I write a lot about politics. And when I'm not writing about tennis, actually, most of what I do is write about US politics. And so obviously, I've been covering the elections here for, um, you know, many, many months. And, you know, at the moment in, in American politics, you have this completely insane situation where every time Joe Biden wins the vote by one measure, Donald Trump comes back and says, well, actually, that's the wrong measure. You know, you, you win the popular vote. Well, it's about the Electoral College. You win the Electoral College. Well, it's not really about the Electoral College. It's about mail-in voting. You win the mail-in voting. Well, it's not about mail-in voting. It's about, you know, signatures or whatever it might be. And, you know, it's this completely insane and opportunistic moving of the goalposts. And I think, you know, in a very different way, 
100 years ago, 120 years ago, Lottie Dodd was facing the same thing. She would do something, and every time she would break through a glass ceiling and prove that women could do it, the men in charge of the sports that she was a part of would say, well, actually, we didn't really mean this. What we really meant was you can't do it for this reason. And they would change the goalposts again. Uh, but it's really sort of interesting to watch how that unfolded over, over the decades that Lottie Dodd was playing sports um, in the 1880s, 90s, and early 1900s. Yeah, and, and it shows you why someone like her would want to escape into the sports themselves, right? Because once once you're on the field or you're on the court, then you can't change the goalpost then. <laughs> like the rules of tennis are what they are at least uh, at least in general terms. And what I'm what I'm curious about and thinking about 19th century tennis. So so Lottie Dodd was a star by 1885, I think that's fair to say. Um, the first Wimbledon Ladies Championships were in '84. The first men's Ladies Champs were in eight, men's Wimbledon Champs were in 1877, and this is all very shortly after after Wingfield started packaging tennis as almost like a board game. You could you could buy the net and and the the other accoutrements. So it's it's very young. I mean that, that's kind of the bizarre thing that we think of Wimbledon as this as this societal standby like it, it, it in a, a huge focus it's almost like disneyland for tennis fans but it, even though it's so old and so tradition bound now it had to start somewhere and in terms of tennis it hadn't been around that long i mean the sport itself hadn't been familiarly known for that long at this point but as you say i mean it, lottie dodd was getting widespread newspaper coverage she was a very famous woman pretty early in this process. So can you shed some light on how that happened? How did tennis go from, or lawn tennis go from not a thing to this, this socially known way to become a celebrity in a really short span of time? No, it's a wonderful story. And, you know, coming back to what we were talking about earlier, the crowd of eccentrics and adventurers and so on who were involved in sports in the late 19th century, Colonel Wingfield is an absolutely perfect example of that. He was a member of the British Army who served in in India. He was a colonial officer. And he came back to the UK and he was sort of bored. He was middle-aged. He was looking for things to do. And he started inventing sports. And tennis had existed for hundreds of years. There was this game called Real Tennis or Royal Tennis that had existed going back at least to the 15th or 16th century. But you know, some reports indicate it goes back many hundreds of years earlier than that. And it was an indoor game. Um, it involved a court that looks, you know, almost nothing like a lawn tennis court today. Um, it, it had elements of tennis. It did have a bat. It did have a ball, but it also had elements of basketball. It had areas that you would try and get the ball into a hole. Um, it had elements of squash. It you know, it was an incredibly ritualistic game, and it was also extremely expensive because it involved this very ornate built environment. And so you see courts that still exist today, like Hampton Court, which was King Henry VIII's court in um, the outskirts of London. And real tennis had always had something of a following among wealthy people in Britain, in France, and various other countries in Europe. And in France, there were also variants of the game which took it outside onto cobbled streets but the idea of a game that was played on an outdoor court which had sort of very carefully measured spaces and everything else this is Wingfield's idea in the 1870s and basically what he did is he said all right we can make a cheaper version of real tennis and we can have, you, you sort of talked about it being a kit. That's exactly what it was. It was a series of canvas lines that could be rolled up or folded up and then brought out and outlined on mown grass to form a court. And then you would have the pegs and you would have the net. And Wingfield creates certain rules for the game. The rules in the first few years were very much up in the air and they, they sort of take about a decade to solidify. But he creates this package and he then starts marketing it. And he had all these connections in the media, especially the military newspapers. And he convinced his friends to basically do free advertising for him. So he got them to write up a series of promotional articles in the um, early 1870s about this wonderful, affordable new game that anybody could play as long as they had a little bit of space in their garden. And so, of course, the upper classes and the upper middle classes who had these landed estates took to it like wildfire. 
um, you know, a modern equivalent might be something like Pokemon Go, which a few years ago, suddenly all the kids were playing. It became a fad. And some fads, you know, last a few months and then they fade away. And some fads get institutionalized. And Wingfield was such a good promotionalist. He was so good at convincing people that this was just a wonderful game. And if you were a society figure, you wanted to play this game and make sure people saw you playing this game. Because he was such a good publicist, that fad became permanent. And it did so really, really quickly. So within a year or two of him patenting his, his portable game, people all over Europe and all over America and in various other colonies, Australia and so on, were playing tennis. And so by the time Lottie Dodd was a very young child, the mid 1870s, the, the mid 1870s, she was born in September 1871. By the time she was a really young kid, she and all of her friends were playing tennis just because it was the thing to do on weekends. And you said you mentioned 1877. That's exactly right. I think it was about five or six years after Wingfield had patented the game of tennis. It had become such a sensation by then that Wimbledon was launched as the sort of first massive championships in London. And at that point, it really was a regional thing. So you'd have Northern England championships, you'd have a tournament in Liverpool, you'd have one in Bath and various other towns around the British Isles. And Wimbledon was the big London tournament. And Lottie Dodd, by the time she was 11 years old, she started being taken around England by her older sister, Anne, and they would enroll in these tournaments. They played doubles and they play singles. And the media started recognizing Lottie Dodd in particular as this sensation. So by the time she was 11 years old, People are writing about her. The big newspapers like the Times of London and the big sports journals, they're all writing about her because she's so anomalous. She's so young. She's so self-confident. And she's taken this brand new game of tennis and she's basically made it her own. And, you know, it's not every day a journalist is lucky enough to find a character like Lottie Dodd, who really traces a story from the birth of that particular story onwards. And in Lottie Dodd's case, she's there almost from the birth of tennis onwards. Yeah, that's and it's interesting. You keep bringing up the the newspaper coverage, and part of that's just because that's what we have to work with when we're we're doing history. But also, there's there's this sort of meta level where she was a huge celebrity at the time. You say in the book she might have been the most famous woman in the in the world. I think. Well, um, I mean, Queen Victoria would have been the most famous woman in the world, and there would have been right. there would have been women who were famous by virtue of birth. So there would have been duchesses, and there would have been very wealthy society figures, um, heiresses, and so on. But Lottie Dodd was certainly amongst the most famous self-made women who was famous not because of her place of birth, but because of what she had accomplished. Right. So you, you mentioned in that context, Nellie Bly, who was a pioneering journalist, Freya Stark, who was an adventurer, Annie Oakley, who was famous for being a part of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show and her, her accomplishments. Uh, how uh, so for for Lottie Dodd? This is all starting at a very young age. You say she's she's becoming a figure of interest by the time she's eleven. She's she's a star by by the time she hits her teens. Uh, but at the same time, coming back to how we started this conversation, th these pursuits she's involved in are a little odd, a little eccentric. Granted, at a time where there's lots of eccentrics in the news, how much of this coverage of her as a celebrity? How much of it is admiration, and how much of it is just sort of a curiosity? Well, most of it's admiration. She had a huge fan base. I mean, when, when we think of modern sports stars, so think of Megan Rapinoe, for example, or think of, you know, the Williams sisters or a male athlete like Roger Federer, you know, people instantly recognizable, their face is recognizable when they go onto a tennis court, you know, you can wherever Roger Federer goes, crowds are going to chant his name. It was very much the same for Lottie Dodd. The, the press adored her. You know, they might occasionally make unflattering comments about her appearance because she was quite tall and she was quite muscular. Um, and they, you know, as I said, denigrated her by comparing her to a man. They'd say, you know, she's as good as a man and so on and so forth. But by and large, the press absolutely, you know, they found her a, a really compelling character and they wrote about her very sympathetically. She was profiled in society magazines, um, not just in the, in the UK, but certainly by the time she became the British national golf champion, which is a whole other story. The United States was obsessed with her. You can look at newspapers from small towns like Boot, Montana, or big cities like New York or San Francisco, and you find one article after another about the amazing Lottie Dodd. 
and it translated to the fans as well. So when Lottie Dodd would turn up on a tennis court when she was a teenager, the fans and, you know, it wasn't quite as large as today. So Centre Court would hold a few thousand people back then, as opposed to many, many tens of thousands in non-pandemic 2020. You know, the, the, the stadiums of today are far bigger and grander than the stadiums of the 1880s and 90s. But within that limit, the crowds would come to see Lottie Dodd and they would chant rhythmically, Lottie, Lottie, Lottie. Um, and that was true for tennis. It was even more so for golf. Um, there were these stories when she was a little bit older. She, she became the British golf champion in 1904. And there are these stories of very hard bitten male working class workers at the shipping docks, the, the um, docks in Clyde in northern Scotland. And there are stories of thousands of these men putting down their tools and storming off to go see Lottie Dodd play golf. Um, and the media was a bit befuddled by this because it wasn't a very genteel audience. They were raucous. They were noisy. They jostled the players. They followed Lottie and her competitors from one hole to the next to the next. And it was a bit like a sort of modern sports crowd, you know, all, all the rowdiness of a modern sports crowd. And the media was quite snobby about it. And there, there, there are some articles that I found where the writers talked in very crude terms about the way the working class fans of Lottie Dodd were behaving. Um, and, you know, it's quite fascinating to me because there was nothing working class about Lottie herself. She was upper middle class. She was financially independent. Her father had bequeathed a lot of money on each of his children when he died. And she hobnobbed with social elites. You know, if you look at invitation lists, she was being invited to society weddings and galas at the time. She was not by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> you know, in, in John Lennon's term, a working class hero. And yet she was adopted by these working class ship workers in Northern Scotland. It's a really interesting story. So wh why do you think that happened? What do you think the appeal was of this upper class and female star to working class men? You know, I, I think it's the fact that she had moxie and she basically looked at a challenge and every time that challenge was there, she'd basically work out a way to um, conquer. And she, she, you know, she played to win. She was competitive. She had a very forceful personality. She was very good at using the media, even though I think she was fairly ambivalent about all the media attention she got. She certainly knew how to use the media to her advantage while she was a sports player. And she was also just such a story. I mean, imagine somebody who could go not just from one sport to the next, but from one sport to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And by the end of her career, she had basically championed about seven or eight different sports and i think you know whether that's the 1880s or the 1920s or the 2020s someone who can do something like that is just a remarkable storyline yeah i mean it, it it boggles the mind just to to see all the different things that that she conquered and i'm i'm interested in the fact that that she did switch focuses so much because now the idea that someone would win Wimbledon five times and then, you know, move on to do other things aside to she was done with that. Uh, it, it's kind of unthinkable, but that's, that's what she did, isn't it? I mean, she, she was always interested in tennis. She remained interested in tennis to the end of her life. But, but after, after she, she moved on around age 21, I think it is that she, she really moved on. She didn't really continue with tennis. Did she? No, I mean, she, she, she played tennis with her friends and there are these wonderful, wonderful photographs from the 1890s when she's in San Moritz and you see the Alps in the background and it's sort of snowy in the background. It must be early spring. And she's playing these competitive exhibition matches. Um, so she did play and every so often she'd pick up her racket. And the, in fact, the last photos I ever managed to find of her in a public setting were when she were in, was in her 50s in the um, late 1920s, she was in her mid 50s, and she played a series of exhibition matches with other ex champions. So she certainly retained an interest in the sport. And she'd talk about it. And she'd write about it. And she'd go to Wimbledon every year as a spectator. She did it religiously, until she was in her 80s. So it wasn't that she completely divorced herself from the world of tennis. But she moved on. And you know, I mentioned Bjorn Borg earlier, he was my first sports hero. Um, he won Wimbledon for the first time in 1976, when I was four years old. 
And I still have a memory of Borg. I was absolutely obsessed with him because he was, you know, very charismatic. He had this sort of very cool mystique. He had long hair and stubbly beard. And, you know, he just looked the part of a 1970s, you know, what I took to be a 1970s hero. And Borg is the only other sports figure I can think of who did a vanishing act a little bit like Lottie Dodd. So Lottie Dodd won Wimbledon five times by the age of 21 and then said, I've had enough and she retired. Borg won five times by the age of 26, lost at the sixth attempt when he was 26 years old. He lost to McEnroe in this wonderful final in 1981, and he just walked away from tennis. Um, and that was this extraordinary moment for a tennis fan because it was so weird. You know, somebody who was still so good and so much at the top of the game just walking away. But imagine if Borg had walked away from tennis and then gone on to become a golf champion, a hockey player for his national team, a mountaineer, an ice skater, a tobogganist, a golf champion. And then, because I haven't even mentioned her last achievement, Lottie Dodd won a silver medal at the Olympics in archery when she was 36 years old. Imagine if Borg had spent the 15 years after his retirement doing all of that. You know, that's basically what we're talking about with Lottie Dodd. She just took a tear through every sport she tried her hand at. Yeah, all Bjorn Borg did was put his name on some underwear. That's <laughs> the only comparison. Yeah. Um, though, though I do hear that Borg has a teenage son now who's, um, I think, the Swedish junior tennis champion at the moment. You know, he does have a teenage son. I, I, I'm not sure he is yet the junior tennis champion. He's, he's gotten more press than other Swedish juniors, but um, I don't think the results have really followed yet. But he's 15. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves yeah, too much. Well, exactly. <laughs> um, so you make a good point thinking about, just thinking about the kind of inspiration that a sports figure like Borg or like, like Lottie Dodd can be from, from your own personal experience. And I mean, I have I have stories like that with with Michael Chang, maybe a generation later. And did you get the sense that there was a generation of of kids or girls specifically who were following the Lottie Dodd news in tennis and in other activities and were inspired by that and took action as a result? Well, there very much was a fan base. So you, 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 there are all these um, references to socialites from the United States who'd come on the grand tour of Europe in the 1880s and 1890s. And part of their grand tour was looking up the young Miss Lottie Dodd at garden parties. And they would try and corner her and talk with her. And she eventually formed some quite good friendships around that. And that's actually why she came to the United States in 1904 on a golf tour. She, she was sort of lured west by friends that she'd made in the 1880s and 90s. Um, so in that sense, yes. But in terms of her inspiration to subsequent generations, it's actually very strange because she's just before electronic media. So there's almost no film footage of her. There's, there's 30 seconds of her um, doing archery in the 1908 Olympics. And there's one and a half minutes of her when she's in her 50s at a Jubilee celebration for ex-Wimbledon champions that was held on Centre Court in 1926 or 1927, where the king and queen came and gave people medals. But those are the only two visual moving image um, records that there are of Lottie Dodd's career. And there are no radio interviews, so nobody knows what her voice sounds like, though she did go on to do um, madrigal singing. And I managed to find a couple recordings from the 1920s and early 30s that may or may not have her voice in the chorus. But there's very little that sort of brings her to life for subsequent generations. And she didn't seek the, line, the spotlight. After she ceased being a sports player, she became quite, quite not, not a hermit, but quite reclusive. Uh, she became a nurse in World War One. Um, she did a lot of singing and piano playing in the 1920s and 30s. She did some volunteer teaching in the East End of London with poor children in Whitechapel. But she kind of disappears from the public eye. And I think she was very happy to live the rest of her life relatively anonymous. Um, there were women in the generations that followed who did things that were clearly only possible because of what Lottie Dodd had done. So an example would be Suzanne Langland, who was this wonderful tennis player, a generation after Lottie Dodd. Um, and she clearly owed both some of her style, but also the fact that she was taken seriously to Lottie Dodd's achievements. But she didn't really reference Lottie Dodd very much in her public conversations. Uh, the other real example from more than a generation later is an American sports figure, a polymath called Babe Dickerson Zaharias, who 
is the only sports figure who sort of did something comparable to Lottie Dodd in terms of going from one sport to the next, to the next, to the next, and being really, really good at every sport she tried. So in, in Babe Dickerson's case, she was a champion track and field athlete, but she was also extraordinarily good at basketball and baseball and a few other sports. Um, and she was extremely good at using and maybe manipulating the media for her own attention. So there was a ton of stuff about Babe Dickerson Zaharias in the 1930s, 40s and early 50s before she died a very premature death of cancer in the mid 50s. Um, but again, when you look at the interviews that Babe Dickerson did, she never referenced Lottie Dodd and Lottie Dodd was still alive. Lottie Dodd actually outlived Babe Dickerson Zaharias. Um, but the younger woman never referenced Lottie Dodd, never sort of talked about her as an inspiration. So I don't know how consciously Lottie Dodd did play into the career decisions of the women who came afterwards. But what I do know is that those women's careers would not have been so possible without what Lottie Dodd had done a generation earlier. So in the very title of your book, there's this idea that Lottie Dodd is the world's first female superstar. And you mentioned two to contenders for what we might call the world's next female sports superstar, Suzanne Longlin and Babe Didrikson. Is that fair? Was it, was there anyone, we're talking about a gap of 20, 30 years really, um, before Didrikson is really famous after Lottie Dodd at Wimbledon. So I mean, it, it, did it take that long for there to be another generation of female sports superstars? Yeah, I think it really did. I mean, I, I don't, I'm certainly not a sports historian of every sport. Um, in fact, the area that I'm most comfortable talking about is, is, is tennis, which I've been obsessed with all my life. And certainly if you look at tennis, Lottie Dodd is the dominant figure, the dominant female tennis figure in the first 30, 35, 40 years of tennis history. Um, there are other champions. There's, um, there are champions who came before her, like Maud Watson, and then there are obviously many, many champions who came after her. But I really do think the next sort of legendary figure is is Suzanne Langland. Um, and at least in part, that's because there was a period of retrenchment. The, the early 20th century, I, I mentioned earlier, the International Olympic Committee's head, a guy called Pierre Coubertin, he was unashamedly proudly sexist. He really didn't believe there was any public space for women in athletics. And he did everything he could to push back against the notion of women athletes competing at a high level. He made it more difficult for them to become Olympic um, athletes. He made it more difficult for them to get media attention and so on. And you see the same thing in one sport after another. And you also see this sort of increased cacophony of pseudoscience saying that strenuous athletic exertion was both physically dangerous for women, that it would cause these um, reproductive diseases that would make it more difficult to have children, but also that it was psychologically dangerous. And there's this really very strange literature, medical literature in the first couple decades of the 20th century, where doctors and psychologists write about how extreme athletic exertion risked turning women into what they called inverts. And that was a derogatory term for lesbian. And it was, you know, as pseudoscientific as phrenology or eugenics or any of these other pseudosciences from the time. But it acquired a lot of following. And so you had a lot of doctors and a lot of psychologists in the early part of 20th century who really did discourage young women and the parents of young women from letting their daughters go out and do strenuous exercise because they said, well, you know, it will make them gay somehow and it will also damage their reproductive systems. You know, bo both of those premises were scientifically gibberish. But that really was the public conversation, certainly in the period just before World War One, but also in the period into the 1920s. And I think it made it that much harder for young would-be would athletes to go down the route that Lottie Dodd had done in the 1880s and 1890s. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And it's probably not a coincidence that the, the generation that finally did break through again was the one that could take advantage of visual media. Uh, that I mean, it was easier to be a celebrity, probably. And by the time Lenglen came along and Didrikson came along than it was for Lottie Dodd. I, I think that's uh, true. And I think, though, the other thing is World War One shattered so many social norms. And so when you come out of World War One, you know, if you think about the images of what 
Western culture was like in the 1920s, the roaring 20s. You think about the flappers, you think about the jazz age, you think about, you know, independent young urban women in particular driving around in their own cars in New York and Chicago and elsewhere. You know, the culture changes so rapidly in the post-World War One period that it creates this space for women, not just in sports, but in journalism, in law, in politics. You see the franchise of women, um, you know, pretty much all over the Western world in the decades following World War One, or not even the decades, the, the first years following World War One, And so, so many things open up in that period. And I think athletics and sports is just one area where women suddenly had a whole lot more easily accessible entry points than they did, you know, 10, 20, 30 years earlier. So I, I started this conversation by, by bemoaning the dearth of tennis history out there. And I'm curious if, if people read your book, as I hope they will, and they find themselves craving more information about early tennis, 19th century tennis, very early 20th century tennis, where do you recommend they go from there? Well, you know, by far the best place are the two archives that I've, I've mentioned already. And, you know, both of them, I think, have been largely shuttered during the pandemic, but they still have all their materials. So post-pandemic, people will be able to access them. The Wimbledon Library, which is just a remarkable repository for tennis information and a lot of a lot of it's online so you don't have to physically go to london and then the other one is the newport rhode island international tennis hall of fame and those are far and away the best tennis museums and best repositories of tennis you know arcana that exist anywhere on earth and there are also these you know various private um collectors and various facebook groups and so on and so forth um but as i said it's you know it, it really is it's a hidden corner of history. And so you have, to, you have to go on a little bit of a detective spree in order to find a lot of these stories. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, of course, there's always, there's always news, newspaper archives and so much of uh, an increasing number of newspapers are available online. If you search for some of this stuff just on Google, you'll end up in the New York Times archives or the Washington Post archives, which is a tremendous resource. Um, I noticed in your, I forget whether you mentioned it in the text, but in your bibliography, there, there are a couple of previous Lottie Dodd books that have been written, both in the, the 80s or the ones that I'm aware of. Uh, given that it has been done, I mean, clearly there, there, there's more to do, but what, what makes you decide that you should move forward with a project when there's a couple books already out there? about your your main character well I, I was really lucky i mean one of the you know one of the holy grails for journalists is to find virgin territory that hasn't been fully told before as a story and the thing that amazed me i encountered lottie dodd's story by accident i was actually on a tour of wimbledon with my son a couple augusts ago just after the wimbledon tournament and at the end of the tour they gave me a ticket to the museum and so i went down to the museum and i looked around for a bit and in the corner of the museum there was a little section on late 19th century tennis champions and there was just enough about Lottie Dodd to pique my curiosity and so I booked a trip back to the Wimbledon archives and um, spent pretty much a week in there tooling around seeing what I could see and trying to find out just the basics about Lottie Dodd and it turned out there were two books but neither of them were full length one of them was a privately funded and privately produced monograph by a writer in Northern England who I think may have been approached by Lottie Dodd's nephews and nieces back in the 1980s when they were very old, old men and women themselves. And he'd written this very, very short book, which you know was interesting. It, it was about 70 pages long, but it wasn't really in any recognizable shape, a biography or a memoir. It, it was essentially a series of snippets about her sporting life. It was more a series of bullet points. And so that was a good starting point, but it was by no means the full story of who she was. And then the second one was an even shorter thing. It was a few pages written by the Wimbledon librarian in the 1980s, who had become fascinated by Lottie Dodd's story and had basically started doing a little bit of research with surviving family members and also using the Wimbledon archives. And again, it was much more a chronology of her sporting accomplishments than a three-dimensional biography. So when I realized that, I was like, you know, this is fabulous for me as a writer because there's so much that I can do here that nobody's done before. And obviously the internet and the various databases that have gone up that compile newspapers and other, other um, published materials suddenly gave me access to the kind of information that 
wasn't there before because you can do these sort of needle in the haystack database searches and you can come up with really wonderful stuff. And so I had this ability to recreate large parts of Lottie Dodd's life. And, you know, it turned out that there was this 25 year period from when she was about 12 or 13 years old to when she was in her late 30s, when she was in the public eye so much that, you know, someone somewhere was writing about her almost every day. So you, you, there's so much material that you could find. And then I found, you know, all these um, photographs and all these scrapbooks and, you know, with a photograph, you can do a wonderful thing. You can get a magnifying glass and you can look and you can get this extraordinary granular level of detail about what, you know, a child's bedroom looks like 150 years ago, for example. And so I could recreate these really intimate scenes from Lottie Dodd's life using the available material and nobody else had done it before. And I just felt so immensely lucky to have this story to tell and to realize, you know, it was like finding a wonderful, wonderful snowfield and realizing nobody had put a foot in it before. And every time you walk, you're the one who's making a footprint for the first time. And I kind of felt that way with Lottie Dodd's story. Yeah, that really, really is a nice intersection. I mean, I, I'm, as a, as a fan and a reader, I'm glad someone came along with your, you know, your ability and your inclination to put this all together into a proper biography. But also there's the, the aspect that the, the sources are out there. I mean, there's a lot of interesting characters from the 19th century who weren't as famous. Maybe we're doing something further out of the public eye and it's, it's tougher to track down exactly what they were up to, to the extent you were able to do with her. I mean, was it, was it overwhelming? You say that for 25 years, she was being covered in the press almost every day. Like, I mean, how do you sift through all that? <laughs> well, I, I work fast and I work obsessively. And I like sort of, if I get my teeth into a subject, I'm perfectly happy sort of staying up till the small hours doing research. So for me, it was liberating. Um, there's a wonderful archive called newspapers.com, or I think in the UK, there's a version called newspapers.co.uk, which has got this accumulating series of databases on English language newspapers from the late 18th century onwards. And you can find just vast amounts of material on these databases. The downside is the print, late 19th century print in newspapers and magazines was so small and so dense that you're almost guaranteed eye strain. So, you know, for me, it was both a wonderful experience mentally because I, I was, you know, off on these journeys every night to the late 19th century. But physically, it was absolutely exhausting. And I, I've got to say, with, within a couple months, I really did develop awful eye strain and I had to slow down a little bit. So that was the overwhelming thing was just, you know, navigating the density of 19th century print. Oh, that's interesting. I, we need LASIK booster shots for researchers. <laughs> uh, well, maybe for I, my next project. Yeah, I have not done as much newspaper research as you have, but I've done a fair bit in in um, in American newspapers from the 1870s and 80s, and I can I can attest to that. Looking at baseball box scores and things like that, it is it, it is a physical challenge, even if you're sitting on your butt the whole time. Um, and you know, it also. It's, it's one of the things you realize, you know, the, the more you do research like this, the more you sort of realize how societies differ in different times. So now we're in the Internet age and we can make things larger and smaller at the, at the push of a button. But even when we're printing things out, you know, there's no scarcity anymore. We, we don't worry about how much ink we're using or how much paper we're using because we can sort of mass produce things so cheaply these days. And so we make things convenient. So if you look at magazines or newspapers today, the print's actually a perfectly reasonable size for someone with decent eyesight. And we don't think about why. But then if you look at, you know, newspapers from four generations ago or five generations ago, and you see the print is a fraction the size and the gaps between lines are tiny and every inch of space is used up. And it's because paper was more expensive and ink was more expensive and the printing process was more expensive. And so, of course, if you're if you're trying to make a profit and you're a newspaper, you cram as many words as you can onto the page. And, you know, so you start realizing the ways that economies function and the ways that society functions changes over time. And you get that insight when you're doing the research. Yeah. And there was just this brutal competition on price with the newspapers at that point. Uh, that, that's right, so. because everybody, everybody was buying newspapers. It's not like today where it's a sort of eccentricity if you actually go out and buy a newspaper. Back then, if you could read, you were buying a newspaper. And so there were all these newspapers competing for your business. And you're right, it was totally cutthroat. It was totally brutal. And, you know, if there were 20 or 30 different newspapers in the city to choose from, 
you had to make sure that you were getting bang for the buck when you were producing your newspaper. So uh, you've mentioned in, in, in passing here, you, you don't just write about tennis. You've written several books. You, you're a freelance journalist. You and, and a lot of your focus is on politics. And one kind of odd thing I noticed in, in doing a few of these interviews is last week I did an episode with, with a guy named Stephen Blush who wrote about the world team tennis in the 1970s. And he was very focused on the revolutionary progressive aspect of that, that thing at that point in history. He even has the words progressive politics in the subtitle. And I'm talking to a guy next week who wrote a name, David Barry, who wrote a book called The People's History of Tennis. And you can tell from the name um, alone what, where he's coming from politically or, or critically. And I, I think it's fair to say that you, your work is coming from a, a progressive point of view. And at the same time, when you normally when you think of tennis and politics or tennis and culture, you think of the, you think of the conservatism, the country club set, the the stats that show that you know tennis fans average sixty something years old. I mean that's a whole different story and maybe not true, but it's out there. That's the that's the image. How would you explain this apparent connection between people who are really interested in tennis enough to write about the history of the sport? and also progressive politics. <laughs> I, I'm not sure there's necessarily a sort of inherent objective connection, but I do think that, you know, one, one of the things that fascinates me about Lottie Dodd's story, obviously she's an absolutely phenomenal athlete, which is important, but the other thing is she is breaking through glass ceilings and there, there's part of her story which is about doing things that other people have said you can't do, it's not possible for you to do. And to me, that made her story all the more compelling. And, you know, when I write about politics, I, I'm really the things that interest me most are social justice themes. I write about immigration a lot. I write about poverty and social inequality and I write about homelessness. You know, and these issues are often, you know, quite depressing issues. But you also get a chance as a journalist when you're writing about stories like that to see what happens when people try to make a difference, whether it's individuals who say, all right, I'm going to move from one country to another because my children are starving in this country and I can move somewhere else and give them a, you know, a chance at navigating life a bit better, or whether it's structural when you see political groups or individuals or movements that are trying to coalesce in a way that makes for a fairer, more interesting society. And you know, for me, it's the same with sports. There's the stories of sporting accomplishments, but then there's also the stories of the individual athletes. And oftentimes those stories are remarkably compelling in their own right. So Lottie Dodd would be a case in point. Another example might be Arthur Ashe. And you know, I remember a few years ago, I was in Richmond, Virginia, and um, I was doing a story on, I was actually doing a story on poverty and spending cuts and various other things in, in the South. And Richmond, until recently anyway, had this mile-long series of statues which basically memorialized Confederate leaders and generals. And right at the end of that line of statues was a statue of Arthur Ashe because he was from Richmond, Virginia. And um, it was so incongruous because you had, on the one hand, this you know series of statues of confederate heroes who had done everything they could to keep african-americans subjugated and then right at the end of the line you had arthur ash who had burst through a racial barrier and was the first african-american male tennis champion and you know to me you know his story is absolutely breathtaking and so i do think that you can find as a progressive political journalist you can find really interesting stories to tell in the world of sports, whether it's tennis or any other sport. And I think maybe that's what draws me to a story like Lottie Dodds. So you've written several books. This is your first tennis book. Are there are there more tennis books on the way? No, not at the moment, but I would dearly love to write some more on tennis. You know, to me, it's always been a sort of not terribly secret obsession. You know, a lot of people know me as a political writer. I'm on the radio a lot, TV a lot as a political journalist. Um, but my friends and my family know that in my spare time, I play a lot of tennis and I watch a lot of tennis and I like talking about tennis a lot. And so, you know, in a way, writing a story about someone like Lottie Dodd, it was a breath of fresh air for me. And it was a safety valve. You know, I get, you know, my blood pressure goes up when I write about politics. I get angry at a lot of the things that have been happening in the world of politics over the last few years. And then I breathe deeply and I change my, my perspective a little bit and I shift gears and I let my brain 
wander over the field of tennis and suddenly I feel a bit more optimistic again. Well, that feels like a, a good, as good a note as any to end on. So, Sasha, thanks so much for joining me. This has been great. Oh, this was an absolute joy. And, um, you know, post-pandemic, whenever that might be, maybe one day we'll meet up in Oslo and play a game of tennis. Ah, I, I certainly hope so. So, everyone, thank you for listening. Um, this has been episode 87 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. Um, you've been listening to Sasha Abramsky, who is the author of Little Wonder, The Fabulous Story of Lottie Dodd, the world's first female sports superstar, available where books are sold, which is mostly Amazon, but I still like saying available where books are sold. Um, you can find him on, on Twitter at Abramsky Sasha. And yeah, again, thanks everyone for listening. Check out another um, author interview I have coming next week, as well as other future episodes at podcast.tennisabstract.com. And we'll see you next time.